Good morning. This is Dr. Daniel Guerra. This is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast coming to you on the 28th of June, 2023. This will be lecture number 87 in immunoepigenetics, where we're going to, I think, get to the end of the analysis and begin the synthesis of that paper we've been covering on mevalonic acid metabolism and a particular uh, lymphoblastic leukemia. Let's get into this. We're going to be talking about the use of statins to potentially block the aggressiveness of early T lymphoid progenitor cells. Okay. So one of the statins they use is pitavastatin. And that particular drug is, is prescribed and commercially available. And what it does is competitively inhibit 3-hydroxy-3-methylglutarate-CoA reductase, HMG-CoA reductase, which of course is considered the rate-limiting enzyme in this cytosolic biosynthesis of cholesterol, not the mitochondrial um, utilization of HMG-CoA or peroxisomal. Don't worry, this will come up later. So that enzyme is a competitive inhibitor. And so it, it, when it's in high enough concentration, it will decrease the production of mevalonic acid directly from HMG-CoA. That enzymatic inhibition has been associated with increases in the number of low-density lipoprotein receptors that are found expressed on hepatocytes. And that's believed to occur because of a compensation for the loss of mevalonic acid, which would result in greater low-density lipoprotein catabolism associated with cholesterol import. Now, that's the argument that's used by the, by the pharmaceutical companies. And there is some evidence of that in the published literature, but there's not a direct effect, you understand. There's only some consequence sequence downstream from the use of statins. You've heard me talk about statins many times, how they, because they inhibit a reaction early in steroidogenesis and in, in essentially an isoprenoid biosynthesis, can be quite dangerous to multiple factors of central metabolism and signaling, as well as protein synthesis, particularly glycosylation of polypeptides in the endoplasmic reticulum. So we have been describing this mevalonic pathway for the last couple of lectures, and now you're going to get into even more detail of what can occur when you inhibit HMG-CoA reductase okay, with a statin drug. Remember now, competitive inhibitor, what that means. A competitive inhibitor means that it washes out the normal substrate. So it, it, it's going to have its own Ki, like the substrate has a Km for the enzyme HMG-CoA reductase. So depending on the Ki, what that molar concentration is for the inhibitor, you're going to need a certain amount of that inhibitor to be able to effectively bind to the enzyme and prevent the normal substrate from binding, which of course is hydroxy, 3-hydroxy methylglutyl coenzyme A, right? That's the substrate. And then the product is methylonic acid. So you understand how competitive inhibitors work. At low enough concentrations of the inhibitor, the normal substrate during active cholesterol genesis, during active 
isoprenoid biosynthesis at that early stage. Remember, you're making HMG-CoA from acetoacetate condensing with acetyl-CoA, right? That's the HMG-CoA synthase reaction immediately prior to the HMG-CoA reductase reaction, which generates mevalonate, right? Okay. That if you have low enough concentrations of the inhibitor, the reaction will not be affected at all by the inhibitor uh, ingestion. So we have to have high enough levels of inhibitor. So remember, when we're doing this work in cell culture, which is what we're talking about here with this paper, this 2022 paper, which is a really good paper, actually, in cancer discovery, um, this isn't what's happening in vivo, because then we have to add in what? Well, in the general, pharmacokinetics. And also in the more general, pharmacodynamics. We know how the enzyme will react to the inhibitor, but how will the enzyme react to the inhibitor in a cellular environment, in a tissue, in an organism, will be related back to the pharmacokinetics, which is what the body does to the metabolite that's being ingested, you see? So all that, it means that you have to translate all this work into a living system, not just into cell culture, to know whether or not these statins would have a similar pleiotropic positive effect against early T lymphoid progenitor cells in a, in a cancer patient. Okay, now enough of that. So what does this pitavastatin treatment do in the early T lymphoid progenitor cells? Remember, we're looking at these ETP all plural effusate derived cells. And what you get is you get an induction of a block of cell proliferation with a market reduction in the proliferative synthesis G2M mitosis cell cycle fractions. So you get a decrease in cell viability because you get an induction because you're frozen at that S to G2M phase. You get an increase in cell death. So you get impaired cell growth manifested as decreased cell size, which in a flow cytometer is measured by any forward scatter in that plot. Okay. And essentially it means a significant decrease in cellular cholesterol concentration is going to block cellular perforations. There's nothing unusual about this because we know that cholesterol, like, lip, like other lipids, are necessary for appropriate cell division because you need new membrane every time you divide. Now, in the acute lymphoblastic leukemia pleural effusate cells they were looking at, those are the T-all type derivatives, and in the ETP-all cells, you do get an upregulation of low-density lipoprotein receptor transcript levels following statin treatment. And why would that be? Because the cell needs to maintain a cholesterol homeostasis. So if you if the cell increases the expression of LDLR as a receptor for loaded proteins, which is going to be cholesterol rich, the LDL is, you're going to bring in, you're going to import cholesterol, compensate for the lack of de novo cholesterologenesis because of the blocking of HMG coil reductase. Now, only in the T all cells is there an induction that ultimately results in surface expression of the LDL receptor. That's an important thing I wanted to bring up last time. 
So that means that in the T all cells, that's a real effect of the statin. But in the ETP all cells, even though you do get transcription of the LDL receptor, there's something faulty in the translated protein product because it doesn't migrate to the plasma membrane. Now, what do you think that might be? Obviously, lipid membrane raft dysfunction. So they do an analysis of the anti-leukemic effects of the statin treatment in the ETP and the T-all patient-derived xenografts. And what they show is a loss of cell viability induced by the statin compared to the vehicle controls in that ETP all xenograft, but not in the T all xenograft. So that definitely suggests that in the early T lymphoid progenitor cell population, you have a direct association with mevalonic acid because you can knock down the proliferation of those cells make them become apoptotic if you give them statins in cell culture. Okay. All right. So that, that's a little bit of, that's a more detail than we did last time. I wanted to make sure you got that. Now they investigated the impact of the statin mediated decoy reductase inhibition on yet the entire global metabolite profile in those ETP all plural effusate cells. They gave what they called a sensitizing dose of the pitavistatin, which means they maintain only, well, they maintain up to 80% cell viability. Remember, high doses, you lose cell viability. What they found was that 62 different metabolite levels changed. Metabolite changes followed statin treatment directly one of them, one of the effects was the accumulation of 3-hydroxy-3-methylglutarate. Now, in the paper, they directly say, I'm quoting, that that is, quote, hear me, indicative of a blockade of a mevalonic pathway, unquote. Now, why would they make that statement? Because it's almost like a conclusion. It's only a premise. In fact, it's not a blockade of the mevalonic pathway to get an increase in the free acid because statins would increase, indeed, the concentration of the substrate, right? Because you're blocking the reaction. If you block the reaction, the substrate should build up. Now, that is hydroxymethylglutarol coenzyme A, not the free acid. In fact, the free acid never occurs in the biosynthetic pathway. Remember, it's all thioester biochemistry. You know I've said this. Oh, I won't say 100 times, at least 20 times in the last six months. Now, maybe that means that the HMG CoA levels, when they increase, reach some KM, which Mikhail's making content, uh, measuring the substrate concentration, of some coenzyme A thioesterase, acyl-CoA thioesterase. So this is me looking through their data, you see. Now, I will tell you that there is a mitochondrial HMG-CoA lyase, not a thioesterase. Let me get through this. Now, the mitochondrial HMG-CoA lyase 
is that cation-dependent cleavage of HMG-CoA into acetyl-CoA and acetoacetate, which is essentially the reverse, right? Now, that enzyme, the lyase, is only in the mitochondria. And that reaction, as many of you good biochemists know, is one of the important steps, enzymatic reactions in ketogenesis. So that enzyme is not involved in this particular um, analysis in this 22 paper, 2022 paper, for multiple reasons. One is it's a mitochondrial enzyme. What are we talking about? We're talking about what's happening in the cytoplasm. HMG-CoA reductase for, uh, for steroidogenesis and cholesterologenesis, uh, an isoprenoid biosynthesis in general is a cytoplasmic phenomena. You can't get that HMG-CoA from the mitochondria out into the cytoplasm uh, unless you're synthesizing HMG-CoA in the cytoplasm, right? And why would the enzyme in the mitochondria show up in the cytoplasm? Well, it won't, right? It won't be expressed there because that's going to be a mitochondrial-associated enzyme, the ketogenic one. Now, I'm going to add more detail. Peroxisomes actually might be a link here because peroxisomes, recall, function in some limit beta oxidation of the very long chain fatty acids that come from the membrane by processing because of um, the enhancement of oxygenation of polyunsaturated fatty acids and therefore the requirement for the removal. That's what the peroxisome does, one, one of its functions. So you get beta oxidation of very long chain fatty acids, but also dicarboxylic fatty, fatty, uh, fatty acids, bile acid intermediates, prostaglandins, leukotrienes, thromboxanes, prostanic acid, and a whole host of xenobiotic carboxylic acids. Okay? So in the peroxisome, those lipids are mainly chained shortened. And they're excreted as carboxylic acids, or sometimes they're transported in the mitochondria, but as free acids. When they're sent to the mitochondria, it's, of course, for further metabolism, for example, beta oxidation. Now, several of those carboxylic acids are slowly oxidized. Now, one of the reasons they are slowly oxidized, it's believed, is to maintain a sequestration of coenzyme A levels in the peroxisome to maintain peroxisomal catalytic functional um, potency. So to prevent too much coenzyme A sequestration and to facilitate the appropriate excretion of certain chained shortened carboxylic acids, there is an enzyme known as acyl-CoA thioesterase, which is what I was looking for. Now, that enzyme catalyzes the hydrolysis of multiple structural acyl-CoAs to the free acid and, of course, to coenzyme A reduced. That's called COASH for short. And it may play a very important role in that maintenance of CoA in the peroxisome. To a certain level, it doesn't allow for reesterification. Now, let's particularly talk about one enzyme, enter PTE2. 
PTE2 is the peroxisomal acylcholethioesterase 2. Now, guess what? One of its substrates is indeed hydroxymethylglutarol-CoA. So that enzyme's peroxisomal, and that intermediate, which is the one, which is basically, that's yeah, 3-hydroxymethylglutarol-CoA, right? is also in the peroxisome. So that could be a potential mechanism for generating the free hydroxymethylglutarate, you see? Because that's an actual bioesterase. See, now you see that's a potential mechanism for getting that in their metabolomics. Now, they didn't talk about any of this. That was me probing the literature to find for you a potential mechanism. So I'm saying this could be a mechanism. Since they didn't measure it, and I certainly haven't measured it, I've only examined it in the literature, right? The research only goes as far as what I'm reading. Um, I'm only saying it's a potential mechanism. But there is such an enzyme that could generate that. And the, and the free acid would then leave um, whatever, the peroxisome or any, any given space like that, because it's not a coenzyme ester anymore, right? So if the free acid could just be bulk transported via carboxylic acid transports, which are across membranes in all the organelles, as you might guess. So let's go back to the paper. Statin treatment of the early T lymphoid progenitor cells produced increased levels of other metabolites. What were they? RNA degradation products. So a whole host of three prime nucleotides and some dinucleotides. So that means there's RNase activity going on there, right? That's what it means. Now, statin treatment resulted in decreased levels also of TCA cycle intermediates. So remember, you've got RNA degradation products. Now I'm telling you, you get decreased TCA metabolites, okay? So you get increased RNA degradation, but you get decreased TCA metabolites. But which ones? Citrate, aconitate, and alpha-ketoglutarate. Okay, so that's early on the TCA cycle, right? Those decrease. And you also get associated with that multiple intermediates in purine and pyrimidine nucleotide biosynthetic pathways. Now, these build up. What are those? Well, I'll just go through a few. Orotate, uh, ACAR, PR, that phosphorabacil pyrophosphate, thymidine, 2-deoxyuridine, 2-prime-deoxycytidine, uh, what else? Um, a plain old adenine, 5-methylcytidine, orotidine, and indeed free uracil. Now, all of that is in support of what they're saying are unanticipated interactions between mevalonic acid metabolism and what they're calling central carbon metabolism and nucleotide biosynthesis. Now, wait a minute. I don't think that you could really separate those two, but that's okay. Now, what it sounds like to me is RNase activity is occurring for sure. And shutting down citrate utilization in the TCA could suggest an enhanced carbon flow into cytosolic fatty acid synthesis and, of course, what? The potential for cholesterol agenesis, but since you're blocking 
cytosolic HMG coli reductase, it would fit the phenotype for these ETP cells. Further, the depletion of oxidative phosphorylation, which could occur because of the blockage of the TCA cycle, and now anabolism occurring that would tank ATP levels. And because of uh, tanking ATP levels, because of decreases in oxidative phosphorylation, that would decrease nucleate biosynthesis, which is one of the phenotypes. Okay, now that's all from my discussion. Okay, so that's not them coming up with those ideas. That's me looking at the literature and as a biochemist, putting together all of the authentic repertoire of intermediary metabolism so that you get a better picture. Remember what they're doing in this paper is metabolomics. And so they're consulting in silico with the data they get, a computer-driven algorithm to help explain what they're deriving in their immunopathophenotype in these early T-lymphocytic progenitor cells. But they're not biochemists by any means looking at the detail of the pathways. They're relying on the in silico examination. Yet another reason for me to just chuckle at the AI fears of some people because artificial intelligence never matches human reason. Okay, I'll just let that set in for two seconds and I'll continue. Now, the paper goes on to tell you that there are top, there are metabolic vulnerabilities in these ETP all cells. And the vulnerabilities include that HMG coi reductase, because they were able to probe that by intoxicating the situation with what? The statins. So they're saying, wow, it looks like mevalonic pathway is indeed important here. Now they noted when they were doing the CRISPR studies and looking at the depletion of the guide RNAs they were throwing in there, that the guide RNA for BCL2, which remember is an anti-apatotic factor, was depleted. Now, what that means is that you get a dependency of ETP all potentially on BCL2 expression. That again fits the immunocompromised pathophenotype. Because if you get BCL2 expression, which would be indirectly measured by the depletion of the guide RNAs during the CRISPR study, it means you're getting more BCL2 expression. And since BCL2 is an anti-apoptotic factor, right, you're going to get more apoptosis. See? Now, the treatment of the cells with the statin, and remember that inhibitor of BCL2, which they call ABT199, suggest that there is a synergistic anti-leukemic effect. Of course, because if you block the BCL2 inhibitor, right, you're going to get apoptosis. You understand? So that's the whole, that, that puts it all the way back around. I know there was an indirect effect there by looking at the CRISPR study, but you just have to do an inversion of that study to understand the straight up on uh, regulation of the BCL2 inhibitor, right? So the BCL2 inhibitor itself will block apoptosis. 
So obviously, high levels of BCL2, right, is going to block apoptosis. If you block apoptosis, what do you get in lymphoblastic leukemia cells? That's correct, proliferation. Okay, now, after they did all this metabolic profiling, right, and they looked at these, some of these downstream effects on the statin treatment and cell growth and proliferation and survival, they wanted to look at the transcriptional effects of HMG-CoA reductase inhibition. So they went back to their RNA-seq analyses, okay? And they found that sensitizing doses, remember that allows for 80% cell viability to be maintained, competitive inhibitor, remember, gave them 98 upregulated and some 170 downregulated genes. Now, again, this is at the transcriptional level. It's an RNA-seq experiment. That's a transcriptional response to statin treatment. Now, that includes an upregulation when they look at these transcripts of cholesterol biosynthesis genes, as well as a, a very well-described feedback mechanism, because now you're looking at the control over cholesterol intracellularly. The feedback mechanism is mediated by stale response element binding protein to activation, which is in response to cholesterol depletion, right? To enhance cholesterol production because of the, the potential for losing the cholesterol production because of the statin treatment, right? You see how this works, right? So they generated what they call a gene set enrichment analysis, all in silicone. And they found out that there is indeed a set of genes which are concordant with the phenotypes they measured. In what they're saying in agreement with the decreased cell growth phenotype, the GSEAs showed a downregulation of many of the metabolic pathways that are important for cell bioenergetics and, of course, cell division. Glycolysis, amino acid metabolism, and, of course, what? Nucleotide metabolism. They did an extended analysis then of the signaling and oncogenic signatures, and they identified the statin treatment suppression of AKT and the glycogen synthase kinase 3B signaling axis. And they showed, and we already know this uh, from uh, three lectures ago, from me examining it and explaining it to you, that is all downstream from HMG-CoA reductase inhibition because it's a statin thing, right? Now, put this together. They did a Western blot, which I think is great. You're actually looking at proteins here. And they treated again with statin. And they did the 80%, you know, uh, titration of statin so you didn't kill all the cells. So you have 80% cell viability going, going into this measurement. And they see a decreased phosphorylation using Western blots where they can detect phospho and dephospho. They showed a decreased phosphorylation of AKT mTOR and that other protein in this pathway, S6, right? So they're all kinases, which means that you are definitely in that mode of protein synthesis. So they see a decreased phosphorylation of AKT, mTOR, and S6, which was rescued by, 
supplementing with mevalonic acid, the product of HMG reductase, cholesterol, one of the ultimate products, and geronyl pyrophosphate also function, which means that you're looking at signaling, you're looking at covalent modification of polypeptides, and you're looking at membrane lipid raft potentiation. Now, when they did the same thing in control experiments that treated with the same conditions, only now they're looking at that inhibitor BCL, they didn't see any effect on the AKT signaling. Remember that AKT signaling, even upstream from what I just told you, is the PA3 kinase AKT. Right? No effect by using the BCL inhibitor. Right? So what that means is that it goes all the way back to HMG coil reductase, even though BCL is involved in the control of the apoptotic um, domain that we're looking at. Let me check my time here. Oh, gosh. All right. I have to stop here because I'm almost at 29 minutes. So hopefully you got now some very detailed understanding of what's going on in these lymphoblastomic leukemia cells, particularly the early progenitor version. Mevalonic acid is playing a role downstream at multiple levels, the level of signaling through uh, protein phosphorylation cascades, remember, going through PA3 kinase, AKT, mTOR, S6, all of that, which controls levels of polypeptide synthesis. Also, because cholesterol can re rescue that um, cancer phenotype, it has to be a membrane lipid raft phenomenon. And we talked about the fact that if you can block that whole apoptotic, apoptotic effect by controlling BCL2, it's another level of making this a lymphoblastic leukemia. All right, we'll get into finishing this hopefully later. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, saying bye for now.